inauguration a few weeks ago. And in some ways, we're still getting underway. We've got the setting. We're in Egypt. Uh, God's people are in slavery. We're meeting the characters. Uh, we're meeting Moses, Pharaoh, the people of Israel. And as often as the case, when you meet characters, you see that these relationships are complicated. It continues to be so tonight. And actually, it's just sort of a universal truth that relationships are complicated. Which raises the question that I have, and we'll sort of not completely answer tonight, but we'll work on it. It's, it's common among many Christians today to make a point of saying that Christianity is a relationship and not a religion. And I'm not sure how far that gets us, because relationships are hard. Is it any better, actually? We're going to read our text today. It's uh, Exodus 3 and parts of Exodus 6. And uh, feel free to follow along as I read, beginning in verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you. This shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain. Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What's his name? What did I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what's been, what's been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, excuse me, that's the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty. Each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. <coughs> now chapter 6. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see. By the way, what's happened is God's gone. Moses has gone back to Israel. Told them. They're all excited. Then he goes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's like, who's this God? Why should I care? So uh, the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. With a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they live as sojourners, Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. 
I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. All right, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we have tonight a very interesting and sometimes controversial and complicated text. And yet, uh, its central meanings are pretty clear to read, but hard to take sometimes. Lord, we pray that you give us sharp minds, soft hearts, and press the reality of your gospel into our lives, we pray. Amen. When I was in college, I was uh, fortunate to be able to travel abroad. And my first real flight or trip anywhere from rural nowhere in Virginia, where I grew up, was to Kenya, which was a slight, slight cultural adjustment. Uh, one of the things that stuck with me these 15 years since I've been there is uh, the way we do introductions and the way the Christians in Kenya, at least in the Maasai tribe, do introductions. Here we say, hi, how are you? What's your name? Get the name. Then you say something like, so what do you do? And then you begin to give your resume. You know, I'm a so-and-so and I do this and I'm studying that and I hope to do that. If it's advantageous, I'll tell you where I'm from. If I went to a sexy school, I'll tell you I went to there. Um, and so on. Well, the Christians in Kenya, at least the Messiah tribe, they introduce themselves like this. They would say, hello. They have these awesome voices. Hello. My name is Moses. Or my name is John. Or Paul. Or Bartholomew. Or Thomas. Because they all named themselves after apostles. They really did. They all had biblical names. They renamed themselves. And then they would say, every single one of them, very next thing. And I'm a Christian. Every single one of them. Every time. It was amazing. And uh, my first reaction wasn't, man, that's amazing. That's awesome. My first reaction was, well, I get defensive. Well, I'm a Christian too. (laughs) Uh, I like him too. Um, But to defend myself. But I actually, upon years and years of reflection, about this, and I haven't thought about it every day for years, but thinking back over the years to this, um, it stuck with me that it says something about the nature of the relationship that each of us has with God. Uh, We are quick to establish ourselves on the basis of our merit, on the basis of our resume. We tie ourselves really closely to what we do, and they tie themselves really closely to who they belong to. And... uh, This is going to come up in this text. We're often like Moses. Moses has a role to play in God's great plan. Moses, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh to redeem my people. And uh, Moses is reluctant. He actually says, I I don't have a good resume for this. I think you got the wrong job. Guy, it's not me. He's insecure about his role. Who am I that I should go? In another chapter, he goes on and on about his limitations. God says, I'll be with you. I promise we'll do this. And then he says, uh, not only do I don't think I can do it, I'm going to go to the Israelites, and I don't even know your name. They don't think I can do it either. Moses doubts uh, God's ability to use him because he thinks it's up to him. He thinks it's up to himself. That he has, There has to be something about him that he can do that, for God to use him. And this is where lots of us are. Lots of us think, well, i really like to do something great for God. Some of us think, I'd really like God to do great things for me. And some of you are thinking, I don't really care if God does anything for me or not because I'm not sure he exists. But deep down, underneath, for all of us, there's one, I think, common problem underneath all the common doubts. And that's that uh, we, who so quickly 
prefer to say Christianity is about a relationship, not a religion. We're bad at relationships. Deep down, whether you're not sure God exists, whether you're not sure God can use you, whether you're not sure God loves you, the reality is we're not good at relationships and not good at a relationship with God. We don't know God very well, at least not as well as we should. You know, the details are fuzzy. He tells us and we forget so easily. We're out to impress him often. We think we have to be bigger and better, and frankly, that's not what Christianity is about. And frankly, sometimes, and it sounds like, I need to stay with me. No one walk out yet. Sometimes it just seems like the relationship is disappointing. You know, we're a Christian all these years, and it's just not what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be more like warm, loving fuzzies, and I should be doing awesome stuff, and I'm just sort of bored and insecure and unsatisfied. Can I get anyone to admit that sometimes in a relationship with God, they're bored, insecure, and unsatisfied? Thank you. One honest person in the room. Okay, well, all of you are here sometimes. You really are. And um, fortunately for Moses and for us, the whole relationship's not up to us. What we see in our text is because we have a bigger, better God who makes this relationship, we can have a bigger, better relationship. So tonight we're going to look at a bigger God, a better God, and a bigger, better relationship. I feel like I'm selling a burger. (laughs) Bigger God, better God, and a bigger, better relationship. So uh, first, we encounter this bigger God in verses 13 to 15. Moses asks, what's your name? And uh, God doesn't really give it away. There's a cultural thing going on here. In, in the ancient Near East, to give someone's name was to give something of their, of their nature. And uh, you see that in the last chapter, we say this, when Moses named his son Gershom. Gershom meant a sojourner. It gave a part of Moses' history. It sort of told you something about him. And Moses is maybe fishing for something like, tell me something about yourself. And this is still sort of true. Uh, not as true as it used to be 100 years ago or so, but an example of this is just a couple of weeks ago, I was taking our daughter out of the car, our first daughter, Abiel, and right as an Orthodox Jew was walking by our house, and I said, Abiel, come here. And this guy never said hi in his life. And so I said, Abiel, whips his head around and looks at me. And I was like, I know your name's not Abiel. I didn't say it to him. But he did that because Abiel's a Hebrew name. It means uh, my father is God. And he quickly would have heard Hebrew being spoken and thought a couple things. Uh, Are these people Jewish? Looked at me. No, he's not Jewish. <laughs> um, Secondly, uh, does this guy know Hebrew? Maybe. Third, does this guy, the kind of guy that just looks through baby books and picks pretty names? Yes, actually. Uh, combination of number two and three explains it, actually. Um, but a name does still tell us something often. And maybe Moses is fishing for something, but the name God provides here maybe doesn't help him so much. He says first, okay, how's this? I am what I am. Now, most scholars would say God's not even really saying this is my name. It's just sort of like a non-answer. It's a preparatory non-answer. It's sort of like, you want a name? I am what I am. How do you like that? <laughs> What's the matter to you? Wouldn't you like to know? Uh, but then he follows that up with something maybe a little more helpful in verse 15. Tell the Israelites, I am sent you. And these are all plays on the same root word, uh, the Hebrew word to be or to will, I will, to be. Uh, and it doesn't really tell us much except for God is eternally existing. 
And I think what you can say is God's not allowing us to put any limits on him. In this name, we have no limitations. You can't define me. You can't put limits on me. And uh, that's not only true now. It's true forever. Verse 15 doesn't change. Uh, this is my name forever, he says in verse 15. He is the eternal, unchanging, in character, and in name God. Everything else wears out. He is the great I am forever. And, uh, you know, this is why it's shocking where in the book of John, Jesus, this very fleshy 30-year-old man, says, for Abraham was, I am. Me, I am. Took this name on his own lips. To which the faithful Hebrews around him said, uh, we know what you're saying. Wait one second while we get these stones to, to kill you. Because Jesus was claiming to be nothing less than the preexistent, always existing God who does not change. This should at least make us wonder. It should, it should amaze us. It should shock us. It should do something. You know, when you're small children, I have small children. My son, he's four. Everything's awesome. He, make, he makes me feel awesome. Because you tell him a story and all of a sudden he's just, he's in rapturous delight. He's so easy uh, to cause wonder in. Like wonder just sort of comes out of him. His eyes light up. He's excited. And uh, we're like that when we're kids. Things amaze us. Wonder is a part of our lives. And then sometime like around age 11 or 12, someone comes along and tells us, actually, you're supposed to be bored by everything. <laughs> Seriously. Seriously, someone does. Like, I don't know how it happens, but all of a sudden, like, you're 12, and like, so I, was talking, I was talking to a student earlier, you go to Disney World, you want to go your whole life, but you've been told you're supposed to be bored by everything, so you go there and you make yourself miserable. And frankly, I say this every day, you guys are surrounded here by great and awesome things. Bodies of knowledge that are incredibly complicated that people 100 years ago didn't understand at all, incredibly complex and beautiful, and you're like, it's boring, I hate my teacher, I'd rather do nothing. <laughs> what's wrong with you? Well, it's not what's wrong with you, it's what's wrong with all of us. Uh, it's not that we've run out of awesome, awe-inspiring things in the world. It's that there's something about us. Maybe we're lazy mentally, maybe our hearts are dull, Maybe we've lost a sense of wonder. But I think when we do this, we actually lose something that's very human. And uh, it's very easy for us to get bored with God. The eternal, existing forever, never changing God. The very idea of which should sort of blow us away. And we're just like, eh, it's boring. Well, have you figured it out? Do you know him? Does this really bore you? Or you just don't want to think about it? Uh, not only is God bigger, but he's better. We see that in the text as well. He's a better God. And I'm actually going to talk about this a little bit longer. The third point will go quickly. In verses 16 to 22, we see he's a God that although he's magnificent, bigger than we can imagine, eternally existing, he reveals himself. doesn't have to. He could remain mysterious. Instead, he makes himself known. He does give himself a name. The Lord, the God of your fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's saying, in effect, uh, I'm the God that was their God. Verse, chapter 6, verse 3, he said, I actually appeared to all these guys. I made myself known. I've been doing it progressively throughout time. I've been making myself more and more known to your people. And, uh, you know, it's often common for us in our culture to think, yeah, God, eh, there's a God maybe, but he can't really make himself known. He's this spiritual thing, and we're material. It's this big gulf. Uh, God can do whatever he wants. And a mysterious spiritual God can make himself known by speaking and acting in history, which is what this God's done, and even taking flesh and walking the earth like Jesus did. So we have a God that reveals himself. Not only that, he makes promises. In verses 16 and 17, 
He sees their blight. He cares about them. And then he promises to deliver. We have a God that promises. He's not content with the status quo. Instead, he, this is what you do when you make a promise, by the way. You commit yourself to something. That's what a promise is, right? You're making a commitment. You're putting yourself on the line. God's doing that. He's putting himself on the line, making a promise that he will deliver these people. And uh, he actually takes these people. And who are they? They're, They're slaves. They're slaves in Israel. They're not even a nation. They've done nothing, really, except for build some cities. And he owns them. And that owns them like dunks on them and embarrasses them. Owns them like says, you're mine. I want you to be part of my team. Like, you're mine. I want you. And he does this in verse 18. And it's really shocking how it happens because he says, uh, Moses, what I want you to do is go gather the elders of Israel and then go to Pharaoh. You know, that important guy, the king, the most important guy in the world, it seems, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I want you to go with them and say, that Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, said, let my people go. See what he did there? He owns these slaves so much that he actually takes God of the Hebrews and makes it part of his title. I am the Lord, the pre-existing God, God of the Hebrews. And uh, you can expect what Pharaoh would say. Who? God of the Hebrews. I've never heard of him. Oh, you mean God of those like miserable, weak, Nobody's slaves. Oh, let me think about this for a moment. He wants you to go. No. Who, who, would, who would own such a group of losers? What kind of God would own such a group of people? Yahweh would. God would. The great I am owns a bunch of nobodies, takes them into his very name, makes a promise to them. And he makes a promise that he remembers. And this is chapter 6. Verses 5 through 8. And this is vitally important. This is really important. In some ways, I think this is sort of the crux of everyday practical Christianity. If you're, if you're a Christian, and we're always assuming in RUF that not everyone is, that people are in process, or people are skeptical and cynical, it's understandable. But in verses 5 through it, I think we have sort of a, an important peg that we need to plant firmly in life, a lesson for us that helps us live life more faithfully as Christians. And uh, it's how God interacts with his promise. I'm going to read it again. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel. Whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, I have remembered my covenant. And then verses 6 through 8, so God remembers his promise, his covenant. And then verses 6 through 8, notice two things. First, the way it starts. Say, therefore, I am the Lord. If you read carefully, what you see is seven, seven promises. I will bring them out. I will deliver. I will redeem. I will take you. I will be your God. I will bring you in. I will give it to you. How's it close? I am the Lord. Bracketed, this sevenfold promise of what God's going to do. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. How do I know you're going to do this, God? I am the Lord. Are you sure? I am the Lord. We have a personal God who reveals himself to a people. They may know him. He owns them, although they're, in the world's eyes, not worth owning. He makes promises to deliver them, and he keeps them. Why does he keep his promises? Because he's the Lord. Because he's a better God than we imagine. He's a better God. See, well, let me give you an illustration. Um, when, you're, when you're a parent, one of the things you, you sort of don't ever want to hear your kids say, but you know it's coming, is the question, do you promise? Because when, when a child asks, do you promise, it means you've already earned their distrust. Right? I mean, they would never ask the question if you hadn't broken their trust. 
So when you hear the question, do you promise, what they're saying is, uh, Dad, could you, put your, could you put your commitment on the line? I'm not even sure how much that's worth, Dad, because you've broken my promise so many times. But uh, do you promise, Dad? And uh, thankfully, my son has not done that yet, but I'm sure it's coming. Well, we have issues with trust. We have issues with trusting God because we assume he's like us, which is not trustworthy. I mean, we're not trustworthy. We don't keep our promises. We do sometimes, but not all the time. We've let people down. We let ourselves down. We know we're not trustworthy. And that's why many of us that are Christians are plagued every day by insecurity and doubt that God loves us and that God can do great things with us because we think it's about our trustworthiness. We think it's about our faithfulness. See, what we need to see here is that God's redemption, God's work, is not fully dependent on you. It's not dependent on your faithfulness. God's not trusting you. In a sense, he is, but here he's not. He's not trusting you. God's trusting himself. He is trustworthy. He is perfect in character. He keeps his word. How can I trust God? Because he's a God that always keeps his promises. I don't. I know that. He knows that. But he keeps his promises. He is faithful. He can be trusted. He's a better God than we imagine. He's not like us. He's a better God. And we need to see that and own that. He's a bigger and better God. And because of that, we can have a bigger, better relationship. This point will be short. In uh, verses 6, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, we have God saying, I'm going to redeem you and make you my people. And in verse 7, we read, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. You shall know I am the Lord who has brought you out from the, under the burden of the Egyptians. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Now, I don't know if you noticed it or not, but those are the exact same words we read in Revelation 21. In fact, that's why we read Revelation 21. Revelation 21, you have the bride coming out of heaven which is the church, to meet Jesus, the bridegroom. And you have these words, I'll, I'll be their God. You'll be my people. And actually, this is exactly what happens in Genesis. It's the way it is in the beginning, God with his people. It is the picture, friends, of a marriage. It's a picture of a marriage. That's exactly what Revelation 21 is. It calls him a bride and us, him the bridegroom and us the bride. And uh, what we're having here is that the relationship we're supposed to have with the living God is supposed to be like a marriage, an intimate, intense, mutual ownership. That's what God's after with you and with his people. Now, guys, some of you are thinking like, man, a little uncomfortable with being Jesus' wife. Um, <laughs> it's okay. God's got some awesome things planned for you guys. I know you're a little uncomfortable with the relational aspects of this, but uh, God's got some good work for you to do. He expects you to give his life. Uh, for for him. So there's some good purposes here and things for you. I promise. You will see this as we go along in Exodus. But uh, hang with me here. Um, what we have here is a God who wants us. It's, it's marriage. Who loves us. And who's saying, basically, you're mine forever. To his people that love him and know him and trust him. You're mine forever. I want you. I love you. You're mine. And this is, if you're a Christian, if you've trusted Jesus, this is how you should feel. Not all the time. I'm you know me. I'm not. Maybe you don't. Um, if you don't, good for you. But um, I'm not overly sentimental or romantic. 
but I believe Scripture to be true, and I know God made our hearts with longing for deep intimacy and to be loved and to be secure. And he's saying here, that this is like a marriage. This is what we're longing for. This is what every marriage hopes to be but never is. It mimics and foreshadows but never quite completes. God's saying, you're my people. I'm your God. It's a deeper, longer, eternal, better relationship than we imagine. You know what else happens when you get married? I mean, you, you become one. You really do in this really weird, awesome way. Um, you commit yourself. You give yourself fully. They give themselves fully to you. Guys, there's nothing like that. Men, when you'll have to wait. But your wife literally just sort of entrusts herself fully to you. It's awesome and incredibly responsible. It's hard. But um, what also happens when you get married is you get family. Like, like my family. Like, babies start happening. Uh, that's one way in which you get family. If you don't believe me, you come to my house. They're everywhere. <laughs> um, but what also happens is you get their family, and she gets your family. And, you know, I love my in-laws, but, man, they're weird. <laughs> Salmon for Thanksgiving. They just sort of call. Hey, we're coming to Pittsburgh. When? We'll be there in an hour. What? <laughs> Where are you now? Like, it's just normal. Seriously, it's absolutely, completely normal for them. And uh, you get family. So this bigger, better relationship is not just marital. It's familial. God makes you a people. I will take you to be my people. I'll be your God. He doesn't say, I'll take you to be my person. He doesn't say, it's just about me and you and your personal relationship with Jesus, which is the way we think because we're such individualists in America. At the same time, we're incredibly lonely and want to be a part of a community. Jesus, God says, you're my people. You're a collective. You're a family. He makes us a family by bringing us to himself. It's not just us and him. It's the great I am and his people. If, you, uh, if you're a Christian, do you find your relationship with Jesus unsatisfying sometimes? I mean, yeah. If you're not a Christian... And of course you find it unsatisfying. Um, it's understandable. In some ways you're entering this in the same place that most of us are. You haven't bought in because it doesn't seem like it would be what you would want. Well, there's a couple reasons why. It's possible that you don't really know the bigger, better God that this text talks about. And I'm talking about us Christians because what we often do is substitute a lesser God for this. A smaller God that we can manage and manipulate. A God that's not quite like this. God doesn't really care about our sin. God, we forget the details. It's fuzzy. We forget. We don't really. We're bad at relationships. I mean, we just forget what people are like, and we do that with God. We forget sometimes intentionally what He's like. We take a substitute of our own invention, and we always suffer because of it. He is always a better God. This God is always a better God. So uh, if that's us, and it is us, every Christian does this, uh, you have to hold to Scripture. The God you create in your brain is not God. The God of the Bible, if you're a Christian, is God. And the way he reveals himself, you have to hold to that. And if you're not sure, if you're not a Christian, you're exploring, uh, this is a great opportunity for you this semester as we study Exodus. This is really about the people of Israel and Moses coming to know what God's like. I'm not saying by the end of this semester I'm going to talk you into being a Christian. I don't think I can do that. I am saying if you sit with us throughout the semester, you'll get a really good understanding of who the biblical God is. So you have to hold to the word, study who God is, 
And then secondly, and this is often true too, and this is hard, it's possible that you know him. It's possible that you've even sort of entered into the marriage relationship, that you're a Christian, that you know you're a Christian, um, but you're just not always into this relationship. You know, maybe right now the thing keeping you in the relationship is this really, really, really long, thin, tethered line, and you just keep stretching it. Um, but you're just not into that relationship as much. You've got other things to do. You're too busy. You just haven't found the right church, the right campus ministry, the right whatever. And um, you're not pursuing. You're not partaking. And you're just not in with God right now. Uh, let me tell you what this is like. And uh, some of you may think this example is somewhat profane. Sorry. He says it, actually, in Revelation 21. It's like marriage. It's like being married to the most gorgeous man or woman. Take your pick. Um, the most gorgeous man or woman who knows you, loves you, has pledged themselves to you, who wants you, who sleeps in the same bed as you every night, but you never have sex with them. You never sleep with them. You're never intimate with them. You never pursue them. They love you. They want a family because they made an oath to you. They're never going to leave. And it's all there for you. Frankly, you're just not that into them. Tell me, is it them or is it you? But friends, we have a bigger God. We have a better God. And when we recognize who that is and see it most clearly in the person of Jesus, we have the offer of a bigger and better relationship uh, than what we currently experience. The question is, do you know him? Do you know this God? Study the person of Jesus. It's the clearest portrait we have. And then secondly, do you want this relationship? Do you want it? Okay, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's a, it's a hard, challenging text.